0: I want to introduce you to Professor Keith Hansen, who spent a year, uh, spent years with the Central Intelligence Agency and, uh, and uh, working with the State Department in arms control negotiations. Uh, spent much of his life with his wife Margie in uh, Vienna and Geneva and other places, uh, and subsequently uh, has become. a a global servant. Uh, He and his wife volunteer upwards of six months of the year around the world uh, in teaching situations, in mission support situations, especially with Wycliffe. And uh, a quarter a year teaches at Stanford, at other times teaches at uh, Sierra Nevada College, Uh, a couple of master's degrees, plenty of education, plenty of experience, and uh, a couple, three books to his credit. I'm not going to go into the detail here. I can send you a resume if you want it, but I want to turn it over to him. Three years ago, but, but with just one story, three years ago, three years ago, two years ago, a couple of years back, uh, four couples of equivalent vintage, that is to say old, like me, um, were reunited. Yourself, <laughs> well, I didn't say you were. We uh, were reunited uh, in the redwoods out of Santa Cruz, California, uh, after, never, after not having been together for nearly 40 years. Um, now, all of us had kept in touch with each other and we had been with others, uh, but never the four of us together. We were all part of a, uh, of a small group in a church in Washington, D.C. in the early 70s, uh, along with some others, forging relationships, uh, anchoring our marriages, and uh, anchoring our friendships that uh, remain close even despite the miles and the years uh, all these years later. And I say that only to say that uh, I treasure for you, or I hope you would treasure and I wish for you, the chance to develop relationships that last a a lifetime. Because this is for me, is not just about introducing a distinguished uh, scholar and public servant but a dear friend and brother in Christ. So I introduce you to Keith Hansen. Uh, he will follow an outline. I think there's uh, plenty of copies. So even if you're not in one of the classes, would you pull from the back of the sign-up sheet the outline of his thought uh, and explanation about the role of intelligence uh, then and now. Keith, thank you.
1: Thank you, Professor Woodward privilege to be here, and I was told I better stand right here, because this is where the acoustics are the best, and since all of you want to sit way back there, uh, and I get to talk to all these empty seats, uh, I'll try to make sure my voice does communicate up there. But this is what the outline looks like. I would encourage you to take one off that clipboard as it comes around, and it allows you, if you care to, take notes. um, Basically, what I want to cover with you today is what I spend... A whole quarter teaching at Stanford. So as we say in Washington, you're going to drink from a fire hose, all right? But I want to cover and give you as well as I can, within the time constraints we have today, what U.S. national intelligence is all about and how it supports U.S. national security. All right, that's really what I want to cover today. And from what Professor Rosdova told me an email and, and told uh, Professor Woodward there are certain things she asked me to touch on that she wanted me to make sure that I, I, I uh, register for your consciousness, and I hope that I will uh, satisfy her desire for that. She and I first got acquainted at Stanford back some six, seven years ago, and uh, it's nice to know that she's here, and I'm sorry that I missed her today. All right, let's, let's start this quick journey through the world of intelligence. And I also want to include in that some personal reflections because when I first decided to get into the intelligence business, it was a real step of faith. Because intelligence is not something that I had intended to devote my career to. I thought I was going to be an international development. That's where I really felt drawn. But the Lord obviously had His plan A, which was not on my radar scope. And uh, we'll say a little bit more about that as we go on. But let's talk about intelligence. What do you think of when you think of the word intelligence? What is intelligence? I'm used to teaching seminars, so I want to have some interaction here. I want to make sure you guys are awake, so please speak up. What is intelligence? What comes to mind? Information. What kind of information? Is all information intelligence? Military information. That's a type of information. What other types of information are there? <coughs> How about newspapers? Is that intelligence? It's information, but it's not intelligence in the, in the way that I'm speaking of it. Intelligence is unique information that is gathered... And communicated to policymakers that otherwise is not available. So it's not in the newspapers, typically, hopefully. It has to be stolen from somebody because it's denied information. In somebody's country, in somebody's world, it is classified information that is not to be given out to people who do not have a need to know. So, intelligence is something for U.S. national security that we need to know about another nation-state, typically. Or, in your world, about some non-state actor like Obama bin Laden. Uh, Obama bin Laden, there you go. Osama bin Laden. Sorry about that. Strike that from the recording. Intelligence information has to be obtained because otherwise it's not known... And not of any use to U.S. policymakers. It can be of military nature, it can be economics, it can be politics, it can be environment, it can be agriculture, it can be health. Anything that is of U.S. national security concern that policymakers need to have more information than they already have has to be obtained typically by the intelligence community. And I'll talk to you about that intelligence community in a minute. One of the key things about intelligence is it is not policy. Most of your courses, I'm sure, focus on U.S. or somebody else's policies. Intelligence is not policy. Intelligence in the United States does not advocate, does not recommend, does not promote, does not defend policy. Intelligence's role is only one, to support. To supply to policymakers the information they need to discern and to make good national policy decisions. So please keep that in mind because in the newspapers it's always confused because there's a lot of ignorance out there, and part of what I want to do today is help you get that ignorance behind you for you to become more responsible and discerning citizens of the United States if you're a national, if you're not of the world you need to understand the distinction between intelligence and policy it's at the core it is fundamental and intelligence is a service activity one of the reasons it resonates with me personally so much is because as a follower of christ i'm committed to serve there is no such thing as retirement for the christian community there's only changing types of activities of service. Intelligence serves the U.S. national security interests by supporting policymakers in their deliberations of policy and at times in their execution of policy. Now, how is it organized? How many of you have taken a U.S. government course of some part, type or another? Okay, very basically, you've got the executive <coughs> branch and who is the chief executive? President. president, right? He is supported by the National Security Council, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, etc. Those <coughs> senior policy officials who advise him as to national security policy. You have the legislative branch, otherwise known as the Congress. Only the President by charter has a responsibility to discern and to promote and to create and to prosecute U.S. policy. Congress, however, is the conscience of the executive branch. And is always checking over and looking over their shoulders, trying to say, are you doing the right thing? Congress also controls the budget. So Congress can control what the executive branch does by either allocating money for it or denying money to it. All right, basic US government organization. Supporting all this is the intelligence community. I say community because there are 16 organizations that make up the United States intelligence community. You hear a lot about CIA. CIA was established in 1947 with the National Security Act that set up the National Security Council and the CIA to be the intelligence arm to supply the information to the NSC to support presidential decision-making. Whether there are military intelligence organizations, there are other organizations within the intelligence community along with CIA, but they are all departmental organizations. State Department has an intelligence bureau. The Department of Defense has military and civilian intelligence supporting it. Department of Energy has intelligence supporting it. Department of Homeland Security has an intelligence component supporting it. The Treasury Department has an intelligence component. Commerce has an intelligence department. All of them are part of the intelligence community. CIA is the only one that doesn't belong to a policy organization that was set up specifically so that it would not be encumbered by political views of things, but would be able to supply information to the whole council, not just to part of the council, and of course to the president. But the Intelligence Committee also supports the Congress, so often the same intelligence that goes to the policymakers also goes <laughs> to Congressional Oversight Committees. There are intelligence committees, there are military committees, there are economic committees, there are foreign policy committees, and so on, part of Congress. They want intelligence just like the policymakers do. This puts the intelligence community in the middle of a sandwich, between the squeezing from the Congress and the squeezing from the executive branch. Because often the Congress will use the same intelligence to make life difficult for policymakers, because they're trying to second guess their wisdom in making certain policies. The intelligence community, however, has a fundamental mission to provide timely, objective, and relevant information. Three key words. Timely. If you don't get it to the people who need it in time for them to make a decision, it's overtaken by events and will not matter. You've missed your opportunity to have some impact and influence. Objective. It can't be biased towards anybody's political views, either within the executive branch or the Congress. It must be objective, as is humanly possible to make it. Because once intelligence is seen as having a bias towards one side or the other of policy debate, you have lost your integrity. You've lost your objectivity, and therefore you're no longer seen as trustworthy. That's where Christian faith comes in to intelligence big time. What are we called to be as followers of Christ? Honest? With integrity? That's exactly what the role of intelligence must be if it's going to perform its function. And it has to be relevant. Obviously it has to be focused on the issues that Basically, burying the policymakers and the Congress in terms of their deliberations. I've talked to you a little bit how it's organized, won't go into more of that. How does it support policy? Well, there is what we call the intelligence cycle. The intelligence contribution to policy begins with requirements. What do these people need to know? What are the issues they're struggling with? Is it terrorism? Is it proliferation of nuclear weapons? Is it uh, genocide in Africa? What is it that they're seized with? That's what starts the cycle. Requirements drive everything. The requirements are given to the intelligence community And then the intelligence community has to decide, do we have the information needed to answer the question? If not, then they have to collect it. And collection comes in various flavors. There's what you all hear about, clandestine recruitment of spies. That's human source collection. Sometimes humans are the only ones who can provide the information that these people need And are demanding to have from the intelligence community. Or maybe it's in a remote location where you can't get human bodies and agents into it. So you do it via satellites or some remote technical collection capability. Maybe it's just simply looking at all the information that's out there in the open source in newspapers, radio broadcasts, speeches by foreign leaders, but putting it in a way that looks at it afresh in a unique way that gives policymakers a a unique insight into what's going on in a particular country. Would you believe that more than 50% of all information collected by the intelligence community is unclassified, publicly available information? Less than 50% is actually, has to be stolen one way or another via technical means or human means, but sometimes that's the most critical information. And open source information has to go into it because it's important to know what leaders are saying. But a leader of a country may say one thing in public but say something else in private. It's up to the intelligence community to find out what is that leader saying in private. Because what the leader is saying publicly may be for public consumption and for influence but may not be really what that country is doing and thinking about doing. You get the gist of what I'm talking about? So that's where intelligence brings its unique value. It has to tell policymakers what's going on underneath, not just what's going on on the surface. All right, once the information is in hand, then it necessarily has to be processed. A lot of the information, technical information collected, comes in ones and twos or ones and zeros, it's digital information. You can't walk up to a policymaker and say, here's a transcript of this thing we've got. It's all in ones and zeros. What's the policymaker going to do with that? It has to be processed, put into a language, and into a form that the policymaker can actually understand and benefit from. Once it's been processed, then it has to be analyzed. And that's where a lot of the time is spent trying to figure out between the public information (coughs) privately obtained information and so on, what does this all mean? And rarely is intelligence unambiguous. Rarely is it complete. There's usually an awful lot of uncertainty in the information that is collected and processed and analyzed. These guys over here, including the President, are asking questions because they don't know the answer. They need help. Intelligence community is one of those entities that's trying to help fill in the blanks of ignorance about a situation or about what may happen in the future. Therefore, sometimes you have good hard data, you know what somebody said, or through a satellite, you saw Jeeps, you saw trucks, you saw tanks, you saw ships, you got airplanes, missiles, whatever. But most of the time, there are major gaps and sometimes there are even contradictory information maybe one human source told you this another human source told you that or he saw some activity that doesn't seem to equate with anything what do you do with all that as part of the analytic process you have to make informed intelligence judgments to try to bridge the gap between what's known and what's not known and what these guys need to know once that is done then the results of all that is disseminated. Where? Back to the people who asked the question. You come full cycle. And you say, Dear policymaker, you asked this question, here's the best answer we have. But guess what? We can't give you a complete answer. Because there are still gaps in our information. Despite our collection activities and our processing and our analysis, there are still gaps. You need to know, Mr. Policymaker, this is what we do not know. That's very important for the policymaker to know. Because the policymaker is already dealing with uncertainty. That's why the question was asked in the first place. Now, intelligence community comes back and says, here's a partial answer. The policymaker says, but I still can't answer the question. And what they will probably say is, how about going and looking into this? So they ask a follow-on question. And you start the process all over again. Until, hopefully, we're able to satisfy the, uh, the question. But most of the time in the real world, when the National Security Council sits down to deliberate, to advise the president, whether it's Iraq, North Korea, you name it, they don't have the full deck of cards. It's not available they have to make decisions based on incomplete and sometimes contradictory information. So it's very easy to throw rocks at policymakers and say they should have done this, they should have done that, they should have done this. Yeah, that's nice. But if you're sitting in their seats and you have the information that's available, you've got to make a decision based on incomplete information. So the only reason the intelligence community exists is to help close the gap between what's not known and what is known so we can get the best policy decisions made for U.S. national security interests. What are the key substantive issues that the intelligence community focuses on? Well, what are they driven by? Anybody? What did we just talk about? Speak up. Come on, speak up, I can't hear National defense? What? National defense. Well, defense is one category of things, sure. Defense issues are big, no question about it. What about economic issues? What about political issues? What's going on in another country? Who's going to be the next leader? Is Iran always going to be governed by a radical Islamic leadership? I would say no. In your lifetime, you'll see a change in Iran. It will not always be as it is today. There will be a change sometime. Don't know what that change is going to be. Don't know when it's going to happen. But it will change. That's intelligence the intelligence community is asked to, to comment on. So when we talk about issues, during the Cold War, you've heard about the Cold War, right? All right, okay. Just make sure you understand. That's when this happened, okay? 1947. After World War II, we were into the dark days of the Cold War, and that's when intelligence was set up. Do you realize in the United States of America there was no intelligence community prior to 1947? Never in the history of our country. For 160 years, no U.S. intelligence capability. Only during wartime. Revolutionary War. George Washington ran his own spies. Civil War. Abraham Lincoln ran his own spies. General Grant and General Lee on each side of the Civil War ran their own military spies. World War I, when we got into a European conflict, finally somebody said, wow, we better have some intelligence for these military operations. But after World War I, Bingo! Back to normal, kill it all, we don't need this stuff. Only as a result of World War II, after much debate. When was World War II over? 45. Two years of debate before it was finally decided yes, in these United States of America, we need a peacetime national intelligence organization. First time in our history. Unlike Europe and most of the rest of the world, it was involved in intelligence going back to the days of the kings and the queens and whoever else, the emperors, okay? So the point I'm trying to make is the issues that the intelligence was seized upon in 1947 was basically what? The USSR. And more specifically, the Soviet nuclear forces. Those weapon systems that could basically annihilate the United States. That's the world we were looking at in the late 40s, in the 50s, in the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. A world which could self-destruct if it were not managed very carefully. <clears throat> We also were current concerned about international communism because the communism here I'm get it right the Cold War was a global war. It took place in Africa, Latin America, Southeast Asia, South Asia, East Asia, etc. The battle for the hearts and minds of people was going on between the international communist movement, driven specifically by the Soviet Union, but also to some degree by China once it became communist in 1949, and the non communist world. It was a bipolar world. And it was a zero sum game. Any gain by the communists was a net loss by the rest of us. And they looked at it the same way in reverse. So that was what we were focused on during the Cold War for most of the time. Not exclusively, but that was the dominant driver of policy and intelligence requirements. What about the post-Cold War? Anybody know what happened to 9-11? How about international terrorism? Was that new in 9-11? No way. Terrorism goes back to the 70s and the 80s and the 90s of a different type, but terrorism was not a new subject. It just took on a new focus and priority after 9-11 because they hit us in the United States directly in a major way. Proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. I hate this term, because it's misleading. It typically means nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons. Those things that can hurt a lot of people, alright? The only weapon that's truly a weapon of mass destruction is nuclear because it kills by blast, it kills by fire, and it kills by radiation. The other two biological and chemical are better characterized as weapons of mass casualties because they can kill lots of people through disease and chemical poisoning but they don't have the same destructive capacity as nuclear weapons. So nuclear weapons are really a thing on their own So you have these kinds of things as I said earlier, you have genocides you have natural disasters you have all kinds of things going on The plate that the intelligence community has is incredible. And now it's a matter of prioritizing collection and analytic activities to focus on those issues which are the highest concern to the policymakers. That's what intelligence has to discern. How to wade through all the requirements that are out there and pick those where it can bring some value to make a difference to help policymakers. Now, what are the, some of the key challenges? I'm going to try to watch my time here. To producing this kind of intelligence, does it just happen? Is it automatic? What do you think? Yes? Getting found out would be a big issue. Getting what? But if, if you get discovered by the country you're trying hmm. to spy on, of that could ah. Yeah, that's right. Every country has counters to your efforts to obtain information on them, right, It's called counterintelligence, CI. The US has counterintelligence against all those countries that are trying to collect information on the United States. So, every country has its defenses against the offense, like a soccer game, all right? You got the offense trying to get the goal, you got the defense trying to prevent the goal. That's the intelligence game on a global scale between offense and defense. So, it doesn't happen automatically. There are impediments to doing it. Sometimes there are technical barriers to getting the information you need. If we want to infiltrate, al-Qaeda to collect information on what its next terrorist attack is going to be how are we going to get a human agent into al-Qaeda do you think I could walk into al-Qaeda and say hey, you know, I'd like to gather some information on you guys (laughs) obviously not, I'm being a little silly right, but on a more serious note, take a guy who looks like me and I've got to convince them that they should take me into their confidence not likely even if I look correctly and I have that sort of middle eastern south asian look maybe which is what they're looking for maybe indonesian I gotta have to prove myself and what do you think is the badge that gets me in the door yeah how many americans have you killed ah, you haven't killed any well you're probably not trustworthy so gathering that information is not all that easy, is it? there are some very significant impediments to getting there the other thing is legal issues for much of the time in the 1980s, 70s and 80s the drug war was on just like the war on terror is today the idea was to infiltrate drug cartels to try to figure out who's doing what and who's getting the drugs into the United States. All of a sudden, one day, somebody in the legal system woke up and said, hey, CIA has agents working for it who are druggies. We can't have that. That's not American. But who else is going to get entree to a drug cartel except the druggie? So sometimes we shoot ourselves in the foot by trying to be so pure and pristine that we can't get the information we need because we're not willing to fight fire with fire. Now this brings ethical and moral issues to the fore, doesn't it? I'll come back to that in a minute. The other thing is the distinction we make in the United States between domestic and foreign intelligence. From day one, one of the big debates about setting up the Central Intelligence Agency as the first U.S. peacetime national intelligence organization was we're scared of it because we had experience with the Gestapo that was the Nazi intelligence machine and we were having experience with the KGB the Soviet intelligence machine those intelligence organizations had both domestic and foreign responsibility that is they were to collect on foreign entities and foreign countries as well as domestically spy on their own people as part of a counterintelligence effort. What do we prize here in the United States? Personal liberty. Excuse me? Personal liberty. And Personal privacy, civil liberties. Right? Very, very big. So the debate was how do we set this up so that it does not compromise something dear to our hearts in the United States, that is, personal liberty and civil liberties, okay? They said, okay, the CIA's charter will be only foreign intelligence. It may collect and focus only on foreign exterior activities, countries and organizations, not domestic. We also had an establishment already the Federal Bureau of Investigation, which was basically organized initially to prosec- to, co- co- to arrest and prosecute people who break federal laws, the <coughs> Federal Bureau of Investigation. But it was also given a counterintelligence role to protect U.S. secrets from Foreign spies, okay, and collection activities. The FBI was never really very big in the counterintelligence arena because its focus was capturing and prosecuting those people who break U.S. federal laws. Most of the people working for the FBI are lawyers by training, not intelligence officers. So those people that worked in the counterintelligence arena were basically second class citizens within the organization. This was true even up to 9 11. And I would recommend to you John Ashcroft's book, Never Again. When he took over as Attorney General in January of 2001, he found a very dysfunctional FBI. And part of the reason that we didn't put it together before the attacks on 9 11 2001 was because the FBI couldn't function as it should have there were other reasons as well but part of the barrier was that between foreign intelligence and domestic intelligence okay a wall was built between the two because we didn't want kgb we didn't want gestapo therefore we built a wall says these two will not cross over Now, by the time we got through the 1990s, we were beginning to realize that barrier was a little bit dysfunctional because there were some issues that needed to cross over. So there was, in fact, some national activity going on where FBI and CIA were working together, but not to the extent they needed to to prevent a 9-11 type action. But we did it to ourselves. Because we in the United States says we will at all costs protect civil liberties and personal freedom from a snooping intelligence organization. And that's part of our American heritage. But we suffered the consequences in 9-11. Because it had gotten so out of whack in terms of the reality of what we were facing in terms of threats. That now we could not function together. Domestic and foreign, in a way that we needed to, to be able to I- identify and understand the threat that was coming. But it's still an issue today. It's still debated. In the United States, picture a pendulum that swings back and forth. On one end, you have national security, on the other end, you have civil liberties. That pendulum is never static for very long. World War II, Pearl Harbor, bingo, right over to national security. What happened to the Japanese Americans? They got interned. Their civil liberties were compromised. After World War II, we felt more comfortable. The pendulum swings back. What happens to 9-11? Bing, it hits that stop again. What happens? You get the Patriot Act and things like that because now the United States feels insecure. It wants more protection, and it's willing to sacrifice some of its civil liberties. But over time, the pendulum begins to swing back. It's never static for very long, and it shouldn't be. It needs to be dynamic. In our society, we need to make that balance between security concerns and civil liberties. That balance has to be one that has to be looked at and recalibrated all the time. All right, I think I'm probably getting close to the end of my time. Bill, where are we? Five minutes? Eight minutes. Okay, all right. Do you begin to get a sense for the magnitude of the intelligence challenge to be able to collect against the kinds of threats that are out there, do it in a way which is consistent with U.S. law and the sentiments of the U.S. public? What will the public support? And a lot of that public support sentiment is expressed through the Congress. It is supposed to be the representatives of the people. And therefore, it tends to be, as I said, the conscience which helps to calibrate what policymakers should be able to do. Now, there's one thing I haven't talked about. Something which I'm not sure you're generation has focused on it much, but it's the world of covert action, CA. Have any of you ever heard or been told that the CIA runs around the world destabilizing countries and getting rid of leaders and assassinating people and all that kind of stuff? (coughs) I haven't been told about it, but I read a little bit. Okay, all right. And then people say... Let's get rid of the CIA, because it's a bad organization. It's, it's, It's a nefarious black government that really controls everything. The president really doesn't control policy. It's CIA that controls everything. Give me a break. But where this comes from is in the world of covert action. What is covert action? And I'm not talking about the clandestine recruitment of agents to spy. That's clandestine human source collection. I'm talking about covert activities. When the National Security Council meets to advise policy recommendations to the President, it only has a certain amount of arrows in its quiver. You can use political influence, you can use economic influence you can use U.S. military force. Sometimes none of those options are either going to work or are desirable. And certainly using military force is the least desirable most of the time. Because the after effects, as we know from Iraq and so on, are horrendous. (coughs) may recommend this covert action. That is, do something covertly so the US hand is not visible and hopefully is hidden from the world. Those covert activities can be political. Most of them in history have been. Trying to influence the polity of another country. This was true after the end of World War II when the communists were vying to control Italy and France, for example, and Greece, and the Soviets were using a lot of covert action to get the communist parties into power in those countries, the National Security Council said, we need to use covert action to influence the results of those elections. If they want to, for whatever reason, influence the economy of another country, they can institute a covert action that will influence the economy. There are all kinds of things that can be done. If they say, hey, we need regime change, the government of a particular country is unacceptable to the United States and to our allies, we need to influence the removal of that leadership, you might move to regime change. At the bottom of the pile is paramilitary. That's where we support indigenous fighters fight for whatever cause they're advocating. We'll talk a little bit about these in more detail. But covert action is not intelligence. Covert action is policy implementation. It's a course of action that these guys have suggested and the president has agreed to that is in the U.S. national interest to achieve U.S. policy needs. In 1947, they had to make a decision. Covert action was not a new phenomenon. Covert action had been going on since the days of empires, okay? It's not a new concept. That the United States was going to be involved in covert action... Who in the United States government was going to be responsible for executing it? They said, well, let's go to the Department of State, because a lot of it's going to be diplomatic. well let State Department handling. They said, no, 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 that doesn't work. State Department, a bunch of diplomats, they're out there negotiating and so on. They really don't have the skill set to do this kind of thing. Well, look, there will be some paramilitary activities, so why don't we let the Department of Defense do it? They said, well, that makes some sense because the Department of Defense has the aircraft and they got the the, uh, military equipment that could be used for training and so on. But, you know, they go in with their uniforms on. How does that... That's not covert. They said, okay, I guess we'll have to give it to CIA. Because CIA had the skill set to do the clandestine human collection activities you had to do that kind of stuff, they said, "Okay, CIA, you are going to be responsible for putting together, planning, and executing covert actions in conjunction with the Department of State when it's political, with Treasury when it's economics, and with the Department of Defense when it's paramilitary. Because CIA doesn't have its own aircraft, doesn't have its own weapons, and so on. It has to go to the military to get that support, typically. But CIA had to be the executive agent on behalf of the National Security Council and the president to do those kinds of things. But this was not intelligence. It was not collection and analysis and dissemination. It was implementing a policy. So that's the one place where CIA had received the charter to be involved in policy implementation, but in a very discreet way. And typically, over the decades since 47, this has never accounted for more than about 10% of the CIA's budget (coughs) but it's what you read about in the papers it gets all the press because it's sexy stuff, right? well unfortunately some of the times it hasn't worked Bay of Pigs in Cuba, you heard of that one? paramilitary action that failed you heard of Afghanistan with the Mujahideen against the Soviets a major success story the biggest paramilitary covert action ever launched by the United States and of course after 9-11 you had some of that going on in Afghanistan originally to get, to get the Taliban and to get the Sama bin Laden but keep in mind there's a distinction between covert action and special forces in the military like the SEALs and so on all right, sometimes they cooperate together, but they're of a different, different ilk. In closing, I just want to reflect a little bit personally. As I said, when I first thought about getting into the intelligence business, I was concerned because I said, light, cheat and steal? That was my, met, my sort of image of what intelligence was all about. It was largely an <coughs> ignorant image of what it, the reality was. I said, here's where I belong in the analytic component because what I want to do is try to see the eyes through the eyes of the opponent understand what the world looks like to them, what are their concerns what are their desires what are their fears and try to help our guys understand that so they can make good policy (coughs) but I'm still concerned and conflicted about the clandestine collection when you have to go out and steal stuff And that's what it's all about stealing secrets from another country or another entity. Just as I did with my military service, I had to take stock and said, okay, as a follower of Christ, who am I? Where is my commitment? What makes sense here? I said, will I ever take up arms to defend my country and to defend my family? I said, you bet. Therefore, being a conscientious objector was off the table for me. That was always an option. And some of my Christian friends went that direction because they said, we will not bear arms, we will not shoot another human being. I respected that. But I said, there are some cases where, unfortunately, I will pull the trigger. The same thing with intelligence. I said, look, if through intelligence we can prevent the hostility and the fighting, even if we have to do it through clandestine means, I don't want to be the person out there lying and stealing because my temperament won't allow me to do that. But I will in good conscience use the results of that activity as part of my analysis so that we can prevent the hostility which we all dread happening. So I went to Washington with one mission in mind, not to be a Washington bureaucrat not to climb the ladder of success in the bureaucracy. It was to deal with this thing right here, the strategic nuclear threat. I said, we are at a place in our existence where we hold each other hostage, hostage of annihilation. We've got to do something about reducing that threat and the risk of miscalculation, and therefore of actually realizing the horror we're trying to prevent. So I went to Washington to commit myself to work this problem, which in the Lord's good timing and providence allowed me to become part of three or four different negotiating teams trying to come up with agreements to reduce (coughs) that nuclear threat. And after 40 years of professional service, I look back and I say, wow, I never could have forecast, never could have engineered my career to get involved in the kind of things that I had the privilege of being involved in. It was obviously the Lord's hand leading me into those opportunities and opening those doors through which I was able to pass. So it wasn't without some stock-taking along the way. But one little message I just want to leave with you. The Lord's in charge of your life. The Lord's in charge of your careers if you're a follower of Christ. He's gifted you with spiritual gifts to be a blessing to other people. He's gifted you with talents and skills that you can use in all kinds of ways. And one of the things I've begun to realize after looking at my career is, wow, there is no legitimate human activity where Christ's followers do not belong. We must be there to be the salt and light. We've got to be In all legitimate human activity in my case it ended up being in the intelligence community and in the nuclear negotiations never could have forecast that that career path didn't even exist when i was in graduate school but all of a sudden bingo there i was not because i orchestrated it because i said that's what i want to be when i grow up that's where the lord led And he gave me the skills and the temperament to negotiate with the Indians, with the Pakistanis, with the South Africans, with the Russians, with the Chinese, with the Brazilians, with the Mexicans, and so on, in a way that I felt I had an advantage because the Lord gave me a sense of respect for the dignity of each individual. And I know that they come to the table with instructions and with requirements of things they need to achieve for their country and I need to give them the respect to understand where they're coming from and even if I don't agree with it at least to acknowledge that from their perspective it's legitimate and therefore try to find common ground I think it's the way we go with anybody when you're sharing your faith with somebody who's a non-believer you gotta find where's the common ground where can I build a level of trust with that individual where can I show that I've got integrity and honesty as an individual and as a diplomat that's what I had to demonstrate that I was trustworthy and when they would share stuff with me I was not going to go out and misuse it they could trust that I would use it for the right purposes so It's been a privilege to be part of the Lord's team as he has led me into these various arenas of national activities and he will do the same for you. So with that I will close and I hope we have some time for questions.
0: Let's put it this way. I think there is no immediate use of the room scheduled so we can stay here for a few more minutes if you have questions. Some of you must leave uh, so, while well, do I don't give you the freedom to do that? But if
1: you'd like to do some interaction, uh, we'll, we'll take a few more minutes. Let's thank Professor Ham. If any of you are interested in more on intelligence, this is the best book, and I recommend it's it's required reading for all my students at Stanford. It's by Mark Lowenthal, from secrets to policy. It's the best overview of the intelligence process and the nature of intelligence that I have found. So I recommend it strongly to you if you want to dig into more of these issues.